You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We've got our Google Notes available, or our slide notes available in Google Drive, so if you want to access those. We have spent the last couple of months in the book of Hebrews going through it chapter by chapter, talking about how Jesus is better ultimately, and it's why we don't leave him in the midst of trials and in the midst of temptations. We've talked about him being better than prophets, better than angels. We've talked about our need not to neglect his word and drift away, that we don't need to harden our hearts, that if we'll continue believing, it'll lead to ultimate rest for us. Uh, We've talked about the need to to be maturing as Christians so that we're able to uh, teach others uh, the basic principles of the oracles of God, and it also allows us to then receive deeper teaching in God's word. And then a couple of weeks ago, we saw the the implications of Hebrews chapter 6, that if we're truly believers, we will keep persevering in the faith, and that ultimately our assurance of salvation It's tied directly to God's unchangeable promises, the fact that he's an unchangeable God who makes an oath that he can't break. And so by two unchangeable things, our salvation is secure and assured to us and that our confidence in his uh, salvation, our confidence in his priestly work will only increase as we mature in our understanding and application of those promises. And so we come to Hebrews chapter 7 today and it gives us a glimpse of some of the deeper promises things that he considers beyond the basic principles of the oracles of God for the people that were originally hearing and understanding this book. And um, so we want to look at Hebrews chapter 7 today through that lens that that this is important truth, important understanding for us to increase our assurance of our own salvation. And so Hebrews chapter 7 is all about seeing Jesus as a part of the priestly order of Melchizedek and why that is superior to the the Jewish understanding of the priesthood with the the Levitical line, the people from the tribe of Levi, uh, Aaron being the first to serve in that capacity, why Jesus's priesthood is better. And so from a summary sentence standpoint, we see today that Jesus functions as the better priest because his work enables believers to draw near to God forever as he saves us from even the from the even worse sins by his indestructible life that brings righteousness and peace. So Jesus functions as the better priest because his work enables believers to draw near to God forever as he saves us from from even the worst sins by his indestructible life that brings righteousness and peace. We're going to see those principles uh, throughout this chapter today. For our kids, Jesus is the better priest because his work allows us to draw near to God through salvation. I was looking back in our notes in Genesis because when we were working through the book of Genesis, we came to Genesis chapter 14, which is the historical narrative of Melchizedek. It contains what we know about Melchizedek up to this point in the book of Hebrews. And so I was just kind of looking back through those notes. And I mean, I want to encourage you, if you if you want to study more about this, you want to continue to learn about this, to kind of go back even to listen to that sermon and refresh your memory or to go back to your notes if you filed those away uh, the sermon was taught, I think, on September 6th, 2015. So, man, it's been over three years since we were in that section of Genesis, which is crazy to think about. Um, so back then, we were kind of working through the historical narrative of Genesis, and you come to that, that random passage of, of Abraham 
rescuing Lot from Chedalomer and the other kings that had kind of united into this alliance. They were kind of bulldozing the different cities in the area. They capture Lot, and Abraham goes to rescue him. And so Abraham gathers some people with him, and they go and, and rout this army that had been kind of indestructible at the time. And coming back from that with all the spoils of war is where Abraham interacts with Melchizedek. He greets him. The king of Sodom and the king of Salem essentially come out and greet Abraham in his victory. And it's at that point that Abraham begins to interact and begins to tithe money or tithe some of the spoils of the war to Melchizedek, who is identified as a priest of the Most High God. So the historical account of Melchizedek takes place after Abraham's battle with those kings, and we find that in Genesis chapter 14. And then we don't hear anything about Melchizedek again until Psalm 110.4, where we get that prophecy that there is one who is to come who will be made a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so, man, as I was just kind of reflecting on that this week, I was thinking about how intentional God was in what he chose to record about Abraham's life, right? And and how he even chose to record it to essentially set up the teaching in Hebrews chapter seven, thousands of years later. I mean, this isn't something that that God looks back into history and says, okay, I need something to kind of tie Jesus to the priesthood. Uh, I don't want him to be a priesthood from Levi because I need him to come from Judah so he can be the king of the Jews, oh, let's go with this guy Melchizedek. Thankfully, I mentioned him back in Genesis chapter 14. Like this was all part of God's plan, his teaching plan, his progressive plan. Remember, we've said that that God was progressively telling his people more and more and more about himself, and then Jesus is the climax of that. So everything in the Old Testament is set up to help us better understand Jesus. Some of the big things that we understand, Abraham and the promises made to Abraham that he's gonna be a blessing to all nations. Well, how does he bless all nations? Jesus is a descendant of him, right? And then we see David as this ultimate king, but, he, but he's a flawed king. And so Jesus shows up to be a better fulfillment of what a king looks like. So everything in the Old Testament meant to set up for a better understanding of Jesus, including something as obscure as the mention of Melchizedek way back in Genesis chapter 14. So it's cool to see how God was very intentional in how he handled the whole priestly order of Melchizedek to establish Jesus as a priest. I think it's even important to see that prior to the Levitical priesthood, which would have held a lot of weight in a Jewish uh, person's mind. And again, Hebrews is written to people uh, with the encouragement to not fall back into the old system of Judaism. And so God even recognized for me to be convincing to people who will have put great weight in the Levitical priesthood, I need to make sure that I've set a precedent that there are other priests of the Most High God separate from that line of priests. And so he did that prior to, prior to even establishing the Levitical priesthood. He has this guy show up, this king of Salem, Melchizedek, who is a priest of the Most High God. So even for, if you're a Jewish person, you're thinking, man, I'm going to have a really hard time accepting a priest who doesn't come from the tribe of Levi, but it's been done before. Right? Like Jesus isn't the first, there's been one before him. And so it at least opens the door for a Jewish person who puts a lot of faith and trust in the Levitical priesthood to have their minds open to the idea of someone being a priest of God and not being a descendant of Levi. Okay? Um, a lot of speculation, and we won't go into it today, as to the ultimate identity of Melchizedek. You can maybe even listen to what we talked about 
uh, back in September 2015 to get a little bit more information about that. Some people believe that this is a pre-incarnate uh, Jesus showing up on the scene here. Others believe that, that he's a historical individual who, who served and functioned in this capacity. Um, and there were other godly people at that time. Um, you'll remember when we were going through Genesis, we talked about how easy it is to, to think that once you finish reading about one person, they're dead, and then this other person shows up, and how there's a lot of overlap. And I was even reminded in looking at the notes, something that I'd forgotten, that Shem, who comes from Noah, lived longer than Abraham lived, right? So the whole time that Abraham's doing his thing, Noah's son is still alive and even lives longer than, than Abraham. So there were people who knew God, who worshiped God, who were faithful to God, even outside of the realm of Abraham and his family. So very possible that this is somebody who is strictly a historical figure who God uses to bring onto the scene to establish something that he wants to share in Hebrews chapter 7, thousands of years later, who is strictly just a human being functioning in this capacity, and he, he's a picture or a type of Jesus who is to come, okay? The goal of this passage, the goal of chapter 7, is to, to remind the Jewish people not to go back to the old system because it's flawed, that it's incomplete, and it points to something greater in Jesus. And so that's the purpose of Hebrews chapter 7, for us to see that, that the old covenant, the old system, doesn't lack value. It's not that it was without, without value or needs to be completely discarded, but simply shows that the old system, the old covenant, was pointing to something greater. And to hang on to the old covenant without Jesus renders the old covenant pointless. All right. Um, the ability to draw near to God is a key in the book of Hebrews. We're going to continue to see this as we work through it, the idea of being able to draw near to God. And that's certainly true in this chapter. Um, it's the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel, it's the message of reconciliation, how we draw near to God once we've been removed from God. So going back to Genesis once again, right? We're in fellowship with God through Adam and Eve. We're walking and talking with our maker. Sin enters into the world, and then we are separated from our maker, right? And so they're cast out of the garden. Angels are put there to guard the entrance. And then once the tabernacle and then the temple are established where God's presence comes and dwells physically on this earth, there's a curtain in place. There's a barrier. We can draw, we can draw towards him, but we can't draw near to him until Jesus shows up. And so the whole idea of being able to draw near to God, which comes into play here in chapter seven, it's a key to the book of Hebrews. It's a key to the gospel. Understanding the gospel is to enable mankind to draw near once again to the maker, okay? Told you that I wanted to approach it a little bit differently today and that I really just wanna walk through this verse by verse, just making some key, uh, key points as we look at this to see how he establishes kind of a foundation. Let's understand what we're even talking about here. We're talking about priesthood. We're talking about the Levitical priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood and how they function differently. And then all of that foundation is meant for us to see some application points that we'll get into at the end. Okay, so let's do that together. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open to Hebrews chapter seven. And we're basically gonna walk through and see uh, 10, 10 foundational truths for why Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood, his priesthood through the order of Melchizedek. All right, it says in verse one, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a 10th part of everything. 
He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a priest forever. All right, there are several things that are contained for us right there in the first three verses. All right, the first thing that I wrote down is that Jesus's priesthood is better because it is a royal priesthood. His priesthood is better because it is a royal priesthood. Melchizedek is both king and priest. This was something that was prohibited under the Levitical priesthood. Okay, and so we've looked at some other passages where Saul tried to offer sacrifices, Uzziah tried to do the same, and both were punished for trying to merge those two offices together. Right? God had very carefully established his order that kings and priests would remain separate, that there were essentially checks and balances in place so that nobody had full authority in Israel to run things because mankind's sinful. And so God necessarily built in the checks and balances there where these two offices would remain separate. But Jesus shows up and is able to unite those two. Right? We don't need a separate priest from our king. We can have both offices fulfilled by one individual because of his perfection. All right, so his priesthood is better because it is a royal priesthood. The other point that I want to make here is that, I mean, why is it even important for us to understand priesthood? Like, like, is this just a preference type thing? Is this just how the Jewish people did it? I think what we ultimately see is that this is how God works and this is how God functions, right? So even in a day and age where we feel so distant from the concept of priesthood and the concept of sacrifices, we need to put ourselves back into that because this is how God functions. He functions with an intercessor. He functions with an intermediary. He functions with somebody who bridges the gap between him as the maker and us as the creation, right? And so he temporarily used human people to do that, but humans were incomplete. They were inadequate. They couldn't bring us to perfection is what Hebrews 7 says. Jesus comes in and serves as the better priest. But the whole idea of priesthood, that's foundational to how God works in his creation. So it wasn't something that he did in times past and he doesn't do today. We just feel so distant from anything previous to Jesus being our great high priest. And so, man, the idea of priesthood seems so foreign to us even because we don't think in those terms, whereas the Jewish people grew up in that system. Jesus comes and kind of removes that completely because he's the better priest. He offers sacrifice one time to eliminate sacrifices moving forward again after that. But priesthood is, is, is foundational to even understanding how God works with his creation. He wants somebody who is set up to be that bridge builder between him as the maker and us as creation, and Jesus is that. His priesthood is better because it's a royal priesthood. Melchizedek described as both king and priest. Jesus is able to come and be that king and priest as well. All right, for our kids, he's a better priest because he is a king and a priest. All right, number two that we see here, Jesus' priesthood is better because it is superior to Abraham. It's superior to Abraham. What we see here is Melchizedek blessing Abraham as the inferior in this story. It says Melchizedek uh, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, if you go back and read that narrative in Genesis 14, or if you go back and listen to the sermon on Genesis chapter 14, you'll remember that we, we talked about Abraham being established as this big hero of the story, that 
Man, Abraham conquers a kingdom, conquers an army that nobody else had been able to. He does it with far less men, right? So he's, he's not this old gray-haired man bent over with a cane that sometimes we think of and picture in our minds when we hear Abraham, this old dude that started having babies way late, right? Instead, he's seen as a warrior, a, a conqueror, and he's seen as the hero of the story. He goes and rescues a family member who really... He, he had no business rescuing in the sense that Lot had not been a gracious uh, nephew prior to that point. And he goes and rescues him. And, and, he, and he slaughters an army that had been undefeatable at the time. And, and he's seen as kind of the, the hero of the story. You would think he is the superior character in this story. And yet this, this obscure individual shows up on the scene and he establishes himself as the superior character in the story. The whole idea of Melchizedek even being able to bless Abraham implies that he is superior to Abraham. So the story takes an unusual twist with an unknown character showing up and being seen as superior. Think about it too. Abraham has already been told that he is to be the great blesser of all nations. Like he's the one that's supposed to be blessing others. He's the one that's supposed to be a blessing, and yet here in this account, we find that he is still in need of being blessed, blessed by a superior individual. So the author of Hebrews is showing us, again, that as great as Abraham is and as great as the Levitical priesthood is, there's something better. And even at the very beginning, there was someone better. There was a better human than Abraham at that time, one who was superior to Abraham in the form of Melchizedek, okay? Why is that important? Because he's trying to help these people see that the old covenant, the old covenant finds greater fulfillment in Jesus. As great as you thought the old covenant was, man, it climaxes with Jesus, all right? So he's a royal priesthood. He's superior to Abraham, number three. His priesthood is better because it provides righteousness and peace. This is where Jesus is even a better Melchizedek, right? Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But what we find in Jesus is that not only is Jesus righteousness, not only is he peace, but he enables his people to experience those things as well, right? Jesus is righteousness according to 1 John 2, 1, but he enables us to be treated as righteous as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, right? It's not only that Jesus possesses righteousness, it's that he enables us to be treated as righteous, as this great king, as this great uh, kingly priest. Philippians chapter three, verse nine. Paul talking, he says, I desire to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, 
that depends on faith. Man, Paul says, I want to possess this righteousness that belongs to Jesus. This, this king of righteousness, I want to possess his righteousness. And that's enabled through the gospel. That, that Jesus lives a perfect life, he earns righteousness, and then allows that to be treated to our account. So he's a greater priest because not only is he a righteous priest and a, and a, a priest of peace, he extends those things to his people, right? Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 calls Jesus the prince of peace, but then in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, we see him extending peace to his people. First of all, through uh, peace with God, Romans chapter 5 verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus enables us to have peace with our maker, right? But he also enables us to have peace with each other too. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. So sin creates conflict with us and God. So creation and maker have conflict because of sin. But man, we experience conflict with others every single day because of sin. But through the gospel, peace can be achieved there as well. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And the instructions that Paul is giving here to the church at Corinth is their responsibility to live peacefully with each other and that they can do that through the God of peace enabling them to do so. So Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of peace. But even he was limited in that he couldn't, he couldn't give righteousness to other people and he couldn't give peace in every situation. Jesus does that. Jesus enables us to uh, be able to do that as our greater priest. All right, so he's a better priest because he's a royal priesthood, better priest because he's superior to Abraham, better priest because it provi- he provides righteousness and peace uh, to those who follow him. And then number four, His priesthood is better because it is capable of extending forever. Back in Hebrews chapter 7. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. For our kids, he is a priest forever, meaning that his, his term is not limited in office. Right? There's been various times in our country's history where certain individuals have done a fantastic job of leading our country, whether that's as president, whether that's as governor, whether that's as a Supreme Court justice. Like they've done a great job in their position, but their positions expire, sometimes through the law. Sometimes the law caps how long somebody can serve in that capacity, whether they're great or not great. Right? It's not, hey, let's evaluate this guy at the end of eight years and see if we should give him a third term of presidency. It's, no, no matter how great he has been, no matter how great the economy is, no matter how much peace he has brought through uh, the lack of war during his, his time in office, it stops at eight years. Right? Um, for the priestlyhood of, of the Levites, theirs too was capped in Numbers chapter 8. Verse 24. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this applies to the Levites. From 25 years old and upward, they shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting. And from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service and serve no more. 
So there was, a, there was a strict guideline given as to how long they could serve. Now, that was helpful because if you got a bad priest in there, you wanted there to be a cap to his service, right? Like we want change. We want better. But it was also kind of a negative too because if you really liked who was in there and he was doing a great job, you still had to say goodbye to him at some point. Even when we look into the Old Testament, we see detailed account of Aaron dying, right? He can no longer serve as priest for Israel. Jesus is better. His priesthood is better. Melchizedek's priesthood was better because there was no cap to his service, right? Melchizedek is a king of righteousness, a king of peace. So all indications are is that he's one of the good guys. He's one of the guys that you want to serve that third term. He's the guy that you want to keep in office until he dies. And he was able to do that in his order of priesthood. Jesus' priesthood can extend forever because of his eternality. And so his priesthood is better overall because it can extend forever. Okay, so these are basic things that we're seeing in this passage. To not overcomplicate it, we're seeing how the author is showing that Jesus' priesthood is better. It's better because he's a king and a priest. It's better because he's superior to Abraham. It's better because he extends righteousness and peace to his people. It's better because it has no ending. All right. Then we see in verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Number five, Jesus' priesthood is better because it is superior to Levi and to Aaron. Jesus has the superior priesthood. And the way the author shows this is through the act of Abraham paying tithes to Melchizedek. So not only do we see Melchizedek being superior to Abraham and that he is allowed to bless Abraham as the inferior, Abraham acknowledges the superiority as well by giving the tithe to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek recognizes that he's the superior by giving the blessing. Abraham reciprocates that and says, you know what? I think you're superior too. I'm going to tithe to you. This isn't Abraham's priest, right? We don't have any indication that would lead us to believe that he knew Melchizedek prior to this greeting. There's something innately true about Melchizedek that communicates to Abraham I'm in the presence of a superior, and my tithe of the spoil goes to this individual. Okay? And so the author of Hebrews is drawing upon this. And it's very likely the only reason that story was even included in Genesis is for this chapter in the book of Hebrews to show us that Jesus is a better priest than all of the human priests that come from the tribe of Levi. And so he draws upon this point that tithes were given to Melchizedek. And that he says, I want you to even understand that everybody who comes from Abraham is viewed as doing this. Similar to how we say that Adam and Eve sinned and we all sinned because we were in the loins of Adam and Eve, that we participated in that act, even though we weren't there. 
He's drawing upon that idea and says, all the Levitical priests participated in this tithe, even though they hadn't been born yet, that they are through Abraham showing the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. So they paid tithes, but here's the, here's the thing that he really draws upon here, is that anybody that paid tithes to the Levites did so because they had to, that it was written into the law that you had to tithe to the priest. You had to do it under compulsion. You were required to do so. There's nothing in the account in Genesis 14 that says Abraham has to. It just says that he willingly does it, which, again, shows the superiority of the priesthood. Melchizedek doesn't have to write a law that says you give me tithes. It's just understood that you should because of my superiority. Whereas the Levitical priest had it written into the law that they were to receive tithes from the people. So the whole point there of chapter uh, 7, verse 4, all the way down through verse 9 is that Jesus' priesthood is better because it's superior to Levi and Aaron seen through the act of the tithe giving. There's a sign of subjection here that Abraham gives through the tithes. He recognized he was in the presence of someone greater than himself. All right? So that brings us to verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So number six here. Jesus' priesthood is better because it is separated from the flawed priesthood. It is separated from the flawed priesthood. See what he says there in verse 11? If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, we would not have needed another priesthood. But he's even drawing upon the Jewish Old Testament understanding. He says, you guys look to your own prophecies and realize there was something promised in Psalm 110.4 that someone would come to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He says, so you guys should be expecting this. I'm not giving you unexpected information here. I'm just giving you the fulfillment of something that you were already supposed to be hoping for. You were supposed to be looking for somebody separate from the Levitical priesthood. He says, Jesus is the one that Psalm 110.4 is talking about. He is the one who comes after this order of Melchizedek who will be a priest forever. He says, if this was possible, if this idea of perfection was possible through the Levitical priesthood, we would have just kept rolling with that. But he says, it was imperfect and it could not fulfill the purpose of perfection. Now, what does it mean, this idea of perfection? If you look at the meaning of the word and you go on to read later in the book of Hebrews, I think we get a good idea of what perfection means. Let me show you those passages in Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6, he continues to break down the flawed ability of the Old Testament sacrifices to to bring the people to perfection. 
He says in verse 6, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So he's, he's, he's describing the old system, and he says the old system's imperfect because it can't, it can't make perfect the conscience of the worshiper. He goes down in verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right, so here we're seeing that Jesus can do that. He can perfect our conscience. And then in Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Okay, so here the idea of perfection and being able to draw near is tied together. And then we skip down to verse 14 of that same chapter, chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So what are we saying the idea of perfection here is? It is the ability to stand before God with a clear conscience. The ability to draw near to God and to do so with a clear conscience, knowing that all of your sins have been forgiven, that you've already committed, and even knowing that all of your sins in the future will be forgiven as well. Because at best, as as an individual in the Old Testament, you could have offered sacrifices for your sins you could attempt to draw near to God with a clear conscience, but you know I'm going to sin tomorrow and there are going to have to be more sacrifices offered. What Jesus accomplishes is our ability to stand before God, to draw near to him with a clear conscience, knowing it's done, it's finished. There are no more sacrifices to be offered. It has been attained for me. So that's the idea of perfection here. And he's saying in chapter seven, man, that just wasn't possible through the Levitical priesthood. Why? Because they kept offering sacrifices daily, yearly, ongoing. It never stopped. Every priest that died, a new one would come and have to do the same stuff again and again. So Jesus' priesthood is better because it's not flawed in that way. The old system could only make you aware of your sin. It could not fix the problem. We see that in 2 Corinthians 3, 7, Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 7 and 8. Let me read a couple of these to you real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Right? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about the, the Ten Commandments here specifically. He says, man, that brought death. It made us aware of our sin. How much better is the ministry of the Holy Spirit now in the New Testament? <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, verse 1. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus fulfills the law, something that we were not capable of doing. Romans 7, Paul talks about how the law makes him aware of his sin, but it can't fix him. And then in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So it certainly had purpose and value. It made us aware of our sinful need. It made us aware of our need of a greater priest. But then it goes away. Like it does, It's not needed because Jesus shows up and is the climactic conclusion to all of that. He is the better priest. And that's the, that's the point of the author here in Hebrews 7. He's saying, look, the flawed system of the Levitical priesthood could never give you a clear conscience. But Jesus' sacrifice can. Number seven, Jesus' priesthood is better because it's based on him rather than his family heritage. All right, there's two sections that talk about this. First off, says in verse 3, he's without father or mother or genealogy, have their neither, neither beginning of days nor end of life. And then you skip down to where we just were. Says, um, this man who does not have his descendant from them, in verse 6, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Here's the idea of what's meant by the without genealogy, right? First off, we don't have his genealogy, so technically the author can say there is no genealogy because we don't have it. We don't see his birth. We don't see his death. And so it's kind of veiled in mystery. But I think maybe even the bigger idea here is that he's without genealogy in the sense that there are no family ties to a priesthood. Think about it. All the great men in the Old Testament, we get, their, we get their lineage, we get their heritage, we get where they came from because it was so important to see how they were connected to God's people. Melchizedek, we don't get that. He's without genealogy. The thing is, is that he didn't need a genealogy to be a priest. His priesthood functions separately from genealogies, meaning that his priesthood is not based on who your daddy was. It's not based on that. It's based on the, the character of the individual. Here's the thing about the Levitical priesthood. You could get bad ones because all they had to do was come from the, the line of the, the Leviticus priest. There wasn't really character qualifications there. Here, the priesthood is better because it is tied to who Jesus is. It says um, in... Um, let's skip down to... Verse 16, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of the indestructible life. So the author has said here, this guy comes from Judah. Jesus is from Judah. He's not from the priestly line, but that's okay because he comes from the priestly order of Melchizedek where genealogies aren't needed. We don't have to show that he's even a descendant of Melchizedek to make him a priesthood of Melchizedek because it's not tied to genealogies. Makes Jesus better because it's tied to who he is, his indestructible life, versus the fact that he had the right mom or dad. His indestructible life qualifies him. John chapter 10, Jesus talks about the control he has over his life, right? That no man can take it from him. He lays it down. He takes it back up whenever and however he wants to do it. He has an indestructible life. He defeats death. Number eight, his priesthood is better because it brings a better hope. 
Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So again, that idea of perfection, that idea of hope is tied directly to our ability to draw near to God. He brings a better hope. He provides access to God by acting as the forerunner, which we saw in chapter 6, right? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Better access to God, better hope, because it's a better priesthood. Number nine, His priesthood is better because it comes with an oath. We've already seen this idea, but God brings it up again. Verse 20, it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Comes with an oath. God's unchangeable character plus this divine oath means that we are doubly secure that God will keep his promises because of those two unchangeable things. He's never going to change his mind about making Jesus our priest. And then number 10. His priesthood is better because it comes with a perfect sacrifice. For our kids, he offers a perfect sacrifice. He doesn't offer sacrifices for himself like a normal priest. He doesn't have to. Leviticus 16.6 gives the the regulations for that, how the normal uh, Levitical priest would have had to do that. He also doesn't offer ongoing sacrifices for the people. His one sacrifice was sufficient. It says in verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that he should have such a, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Those are 10 reasons why the author says his priesthood is better, right? That's, that's the theological foundational piece. But what does that mean for us? Why, why does that matter for us, okay? That's where I want to leave you with these three points of application from the text, and then I'll give you things to actually do individually yourself. Number one, be thankful that God will never change his mind about saving us. Be thankful that God will never change his mind about saving us. It says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. I love the way that that's worded there because what I think is being said there is that it's not just that God can't do it, it's that he never will want to do it. It's not that he just can't do it, it's that he never wants to change his mind about it. We probably all know people who have maybe remained in marriages because it was the right thing to do and because a covenant was made and they didn't feel like they could get out of it, but they wanted to. But they stayed because it was the right thing to do and, and, and maybe they felt like they couldn't leave. And, and, and things had changed in that situation and, and, it, and it was one where I'm just going to stay because it's, it's, the, it's the right thing to do. 
but I wish, but I wish, I, I wish maybe I didn't have to. Here, Jesus is saying, I'm not even changing my mind about it. I'm not even changing my mind about it, right? Like, I'm not doing it because I have to. I'm doing it because I want to, and that's never going to change. That's never going to change. That, that's such an encouragement to us is that he, he doesn't bond himself in such a way where he has to keep performing in this way, but he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't love us anymore. He doesn't want to do it. He, you know, he's he kind of fed up with us. He, 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 you know, he doesn't ever say, man, I didn't see that coming. Like, man, looking back on it, I would do things differently. I wouldn't have saved that individual because of how much they keep messing up or how they keep being unfaithful to me. He never changes his mind. It's not that he can't stop doing it. It's that he doesn't want to stop doing it. He doesn't change his mind. We can be thankful for a God that never changes his mind about saving us. The implication for us there is to be spurred on because of the investment made in you and remain encouraged during times of weakness and failure. Meaning we don't ever need to be in a point of depression or, or um, a point of, of, of sadness or, or a point of discouragement where we think, man, like God's giving up on me. Like God can't possibly use me. God can't possibly want me still because of the things that I've fallen into. The implication is that, no, we keep staying spurred on to the things that God has called us to because he's never gonna change his mind about wanting us, about desiring our full salvation. Nothing changes in regards to his plan for us. He starts a good work, he wants to finish that good work. Be spurred on because of the investment made in you and remain encouraged during times of weakness and failure. He never changes his mind. Never changes his mind. Man, I remember sitting down with my dad and him telling me that, that, that he had stayed with my mom longer than he even wanted to because he felt like he just had to. He just had to. And then he said, finally, I just got to the point where I said, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore, so I'm leaving, I'm leaving your mom. So I stayed for far too long because I felt like I had to. So I changed my mind about your mom a long time ago. Man, and hearing that, I was just like, man, like what a sad state to be in. Here, what we're being told is that Jesus doesn't change his mind. He doesn't ever change his mind about us. Number two, be thankful that Jesus keeps on interceding for us. Be thankful that Jesus keeps on interceding for us. What's great about the God-man is that he understands both parties, right? He gets the, the God side, he gets the man side as our bridge builder. He's the best intercessor because he's both God and man. Be thankful for Jesus who keeps on interceding for us. That's what it says here in verse uh, 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The implication is to be reminded that nothing can separate us from God's good intent towards us. Romans eight thirty one through 39 What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also uh, with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Man, as our great intercessor, he keeps us connected to Jesus forever. Keeps us connected to Jesus forever forever. Luke 22 is the passage where Jesus is talking to Peter, and he, 
He says, Peter, Satan has demanded you. He wants to sift you. But what does he tell him? He says, I've been praying for you. I've been praying that you will come out on the other side successful. I've been praying that you will not lose your faith through this. What an encouragement to know that Jesus knows what's going to happen to us. He knows absolutely how to pray for us, for us to endure through the things that come our way. John chapter 17 is another passage where he's interceding on behalf of his disciples. And then lastly, number three, be thankful that salvation reaches to the darkest places, draws us close to our maker, and extends forever. Back in Hebrews chapter 7, says he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he lives to make intercession for them. That idea of him saving to the uttermost means he can, he can go anywhere to save people. He can save them from anything. And by saving them, he allows them to draw near to God And then that salvation extends forever. He saves to the uttermost, meaning he saves the worst people for the longest period of time. We've been working, I I was talking to um, AJ and Abram uh, at bedtime and they were asking me to tell them Bible stories. And so I'm always trying to like think of new ones to tell them um, and not just simply rehashing the old ones. And it's always interesting to hear their reaction when you tell them one that maybe they've never heard before. And they're just kind of like, can you tell us that again? Because like, I've never heard that before. So the other night I was just kind of tired and I was just trying to think through like, okay, what's a story I could tell them? And so, you know, I kind of went, kind of went big and crazy and went with Jesus saving the demonic guy with legion inside of him, right? So I'm like, hey, Jesus showed up on this beach and this crazy dude came out and was like full of demons and, and Jesus is talking. And so we're telling this story and AJ just kind of got real quiet and just started asking some questions. And I'm, you know, I'm telling him about the pigs that they get cast into and, um, so AJ started asking questions, and I was like, hey, we got to go to bed, but we'll pick this up tomorrow. And I have this book that John Piper wrote. It's, like a, it's like written like a comic book. Um, some of you probably have it. Um, it's, called, it it's, it's based on this story. And me just not really even thinking decided, you know what, we're going to read this together. And it's, it's pretty graphic, right? But I'm just thinking, like, you don't have to censor the Bible. Like, you know, he needs it. And so, like, we're working through it. And it's been really good as we've worked through this, it's been really good discussing with AJ and Abram just the implications of that story. But the big implication of that story is that Jesus goes into what's considered a, a really dangerous, unclean area to save an individual who had been kind of cast away by family and friends, right? I mean, like he's the, he's the worst of the worst. He's the, he's the most incredible individual that, that has been banished, completely unsavable. And Jesus shows up after he's calmed the storms shows up on this beach and really shows his authority over evil, right? And casts these demons out and saves this individual. And the guy's like, man, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. And Jesus says, "Mm, you can't go with me. I need you to go back and tell people about what just happened because it's pretty big, right? And people are going to get saved because I saved you who people thought were unsavable, right? And that's why I wanted you to discuss in your discussion groups this morning. Like, who are some people that God has done that with? I was reminded of an individual this week who I had a conversation with who I would have thought not happening, never happening, and was reminded, man, God saves to the uttermost. Like, just listening to this person talk to me, I was just like, man, I would have never thought this possible, which, which needs to be a reminder to us what the Bible says here is that God is able to save to the uttermost. The implication is be intentional with those who you think are unsavable because Jesus is able to save completely and eternally. 
And we could all write down names of people who we would say, I, don't, I just don't know if it's ever going to happen. Those are the people that I think the author wants to remind us his priesthood is good enough, it's able enough to save them to the uttermost. Good enough to save them to the uttermost. In fact, Jude 24 gives us that hope. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That idea of blameless, that's, that's the idea of perfection there, that we can be presented, we can draw near to him with a clear conscience because we've been saved to the uttermost. Application here. Number one, commit to praying for one person that you consider unsavable. Allow that to be an immediate application from this, that the better priesthood can save the, the, the unsavable, can save them to the uttermost. And we need to stay faithful in the situations that God has called us to be in and to keep working towards those individual salvations. Because some of us are around people that others of us would never be around. We keep praying for those unsavable. Number two, complete the application points from last Sunday. Just as a reminder, the things that I encourage you to do flowing out of this study of Hebrews, as we talk about pressing on and persevering and holding fast, that we hold fast to this priesthood, we hold fast to the better priest in Jesus, to communicate your current struggles to your accountability group because some of us will be having groups meeting in the next week or two. Communicate those current struggles so that people can better pray for you. Evaluate your time in the word and make changes if needed. Learn to teach the topics we have discussed recently, that list of 10 that I gave you. Man, be pursuing a healthy, mature knowledge of those things if there's topics that you don't know enough about to do that with. And then begin to think and plan spiritual goals for the upcoming year. Family worship questions is to read chapter eight of Hebrews as a family. Talk about some of the clear things in this chapter, some things that you would still have questions about. Again, encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon back in 2015 on on Melchizedek as well. There's some things there that we didn't hit on today that may be an encouragement to you going back and looking at them. All right, let's pray together. God, we, we thank you so much for this heavy, theologically rich chapter. Um, and God, we recognize that a lot of it is, is meant to really provide a basis and a foundation for the argument that you're trying to make, that, that Jesus is a better priesthood than what the Jewish people had been experiencing. And God, we're thankful that you're a God who, who loves us and keeps loving us and as an unchangeable God who has made a, a sworn oath You'll never change your plans for Jesus to be our priest. God, I pray that that would encourage us when we fall into times of failure that we would see you as one who we can confess our sins to and know that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're thankful that you are a king and priest of righteousness, one who can bring peace between us and God, one who can bring peace between us and other people in our life. God, we're thankful for your better priesthood through Jesus. God, we're thankful that you save people in the darkest of places, people that we would consider unsavable. You're in the business of saving those individuals. God, I pray for people in our life that, that we know, that we interact with, that 
Sometimes we wonder if, if salvation is even possible for them. God, help us to remember you are able to save to the uttermost. And God, I pray that we would continue to keep our hope in that. God, I pray that you would keep us persevering in our faith. We thank you that Jesus is there by you at your throne, interceding for us even right now. God, I pray that that would keep us pressing on, that it would keep us faithful. As we face trials and temptations this week, God, I pray that we would hold fast to the forerunner who allows us to draw near to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.